Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of From the Lighthouse. My name's Stephanie, and I'm here today with my friend and colleague, Tom Bordenet. Hi, Tom. Hi, Stephanie. How are you? Good, thanks. How are you? Uh, I'm as well as I can be. <laughs> Excellent. Excellent. So just to introduce Tom, uh, Tom is a lecturer in the Department of Media, Communications, Creative Arts, Language and Literature here with me at Macquarie. Um, Tom is a cultural anthropologist whose work has explored consumption of popular culture among queer communities in Japan, mainland China, Thailand and the Philippines. He has a particular interest in the transnational spread of Japanese queer popular culture and its impact on conceptualizations of gender and sexuality. He also investigates K-pop fandom in Japan and Australia. Tom's work is united by a commitment to digital research methods, ethnographic practice, and the study of the lived experiences of media use in everyday life. Recently, he's begun exploring the nexus of East and Southeast Asian popular culture, especially the development of Pan-Asian idol celebrity and related fan cultures. So, Tom, how did you, how did you come to this particular area of specialty? Because I find this incredibly fascinating and I want to know how it started for you. <laughs> you know, I, I always uh, share quite candidly that it really emerges from my own personal experiences, my lived experiences, but also some, you know, growing pains. Um, growing up <laughs> as, a, as a queer person in, in this world where that's a very difficult thing to be, I was always looking for affirmative kind of media that I could look at and, and make sense of my positioning in the world. And when I was around maybe 14, 15, I was really big into Japanese video games at the time. And I stumbled upon really randomly, just online, um, fan fictions, you know, the world of fan written products that were about the characters of a particular video game franchise that I like, Final Fantasy. Um, and it was focusing on the, the boys in the series getting together and either having romantic entanglements or something a little bit more spicy than romantic entanglements. <laughs> and, you know, as, as a young person making sense of my own sexuality, I found that really liberating. And it really helped me come to terms with the fact that, yes, I am also like this. And so when I kind of moved into university and then through my my um, you know postgraduate studies, I became increasingly interested in how Japanese media um, played a role in informing same-sex desiring men about their desires. And part of that study led me to really look at this this genre of popular culture out of Japan, which um, is known as boys' love, mm -hmm. um, also known as yaoi. So these two terms are used fairly interchangeably, and then. I became increasingly interested in not just its impacts in Japan itself, but also how it spreads throughout other regions, East and Southeast Asia, um, particularly, but also here in Australia as well. Okay, so I was looking at some of your research and you make an interesting um, differentiation, I suppose, or you talk about an interesting differentiation that I sort of knew coming up through through you know fandom myself in back in the old days um, with with fan fiction queer fan fiction that is written for women mm. versus queer fan fiction that is written for queer men. Mm. How do those um, tensions play themselves out in, in Japanese and especially in, in the boys' love kind of arena? Because it still seems to me a lot of this is written for, for women. Yeah, it, it's, it's kind of complicated. So historically speaking, boys' love uh, emerged in Japan in the 1970s uh, 
because a number of young women writers that we call the fabulous 49ers, because they were all born around the age, uh, the 1949. Um, wow, they, that's amazing. <laughs> yeah, so, so they, they, um, they published a, a bunch of very experimental comics, so manga comics, um, that were known at the time as shonen ai, so boys love, literally in Japanese. That that was kind of using the relationships between men, both sexual and romantic, as a space in which they could explore sexuality. And it's important to note that in Japanese society, this is a society in which women's sexuality is traditionally, you know, denied. It, mm. It's a society in which women uh, find it difficult or there are structural reasons why they cannot necessarily explore their sexuality. So the male body within some of these works and, and homoeroticism emerged as a, as a site in which they could explore because it was it was kind of a little bit freer. So this is the history of, of mm. boys' love, though, um, you know, some of my colleagues would probably rightfully point out that we can trace it back even, even further. And I do do this in my, my forthcoming book myself. Mm. But... Um, there is this kind of history, but one of the, the things that my research actually does, and, and maybe I think this is a little bit controversial, especially for those not familiar with, with Asian popular culture, is I, I actually argue that whilst there is a kind of generic difference or perhaps a, a kind of audience difference between the works that are produced by and for heterosexual women and by and for gay or same-sex desiring men. Ultimately, what I've uncovered is that the gender of the author in, in question doesn't necessarily impact the, the queer potentiality of the text. And that, that's partly because there's this long ongoing fan debate. We can see it really flare up in the 1990s in Japan in particular, when a lot of gay activists critiqued boys' love as being um, fetishization or what we would now term queer baiting, though that wasn't a term that was used mm. at the time. And it's still not a term that's used in Japanese language debates even to this day. Um, but what we begin to see is, is this kind of idea that, well, you know, gay men do read boys' love too. And, and one of the key interventions of my work, whether it be looking at boys' love texts from Japan in Japan, boys' love texts from Japan in other societies, or boys' love texts that are inspired by Japanese texts in other societies, there are significant numbers of consumers from all over the queer sexual and non gender non-conforming spectrum. And, and that this, this kind of focus on you know, the sexuality or the, the gender of the author is is kind of old hat. Mm. And, and so so one of my my kind of responses, and I don't know if this really helps answer your question, Steph, but I actually think it's not necessarily a productive discussion anymore. Mm. Because as you mentioned when introducing me, um, my interest is on the effects, mm. both the effects and the affects of media consumption, right? And how how people engage with them in their everyday lives. And one of my key findings is that for queer consumers across East and Southeast Asia, Japanese boys love texts, but also, um, you know, K-pop homoerotic fan fictions or boys love texts that are coming out of 
Thailand, which are television shows and not comics like they are in Japan, provide resources to same-sex desiring people, not just, you know, cisgendered same-sex desiring men, but also, you know, queer women, um, mm. non-conforming women, asexual um, individuals, etc., to make sense of their positioning in the world and also to challenge their um, disenfranchisement by, by broader, broader society. So it, it is what I call in my work a resource of hope. People use it in this fantastically queer deconstruction of the everyday to promote these really emancipatory futures. And, and for me, that's that's where the revolutionary stuff's happening. That's where my interest lies. Mm. So yes, I'm interested as well in the representational politics. Of course I am. And yes, there's problematic representational politics in some of these works. But that doesn't necessarily negate the fact that for some consumers, they're meaningful and they're powerful. And I think that's what has always mobilized my research. And that, yeah. that goes back to me being that young kid finding it. Powerful. Well, that's what happened for you, it sounds like, yeah, right? Exactly. It exactly yeah. it is exactly right. And the fact is, through my my research, you know, as an anthropologist out in the field, meeting people, whether that be in Tokyo's gay district, in um fan conventions in uh, Manila in the Philippines or attending um, kind of boys love celebrity endorsement events in Bangkok in Thailand you know I'm just constantly meeting people who share the same story with me mm. and the fact is that 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 story my encounter with this this genre that is traditionally produced for and by heterosexual female women you know has been, something that other queer men, women, and what have you, you know, have also experienced. So it's so common that for me that that speaks to its, you know, that that's the default consumption, I think, is that it is queer and emancipatory. And of course, that speaks to its emancipatory nature for heterosexual female consumers as well. You know, it's, it's important for them and, and, um, a colleague of mine um, named Christine Santos, who works at Ateneo de Manila University, where I'm also a, a visiting fellow, you know, we're working together on, on a kind of mini project right now because we're increasingly concerned by, um, you know, cisgendered gay men in the Philippines who are mobilizing misogynistic discourse to critique boys' love. Um, and well, That's interesting, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, so it's like, well, you... In service of creating this this narrative of what is and is not authentic queer male representation that is um, very, you know, homonormative to use use a fancy academic term, you know, a, a term that mm. that kind of puts forward a really conservative understanding of what queer identity should be. So my colleague and I, you know, we've been involved in this stuff as fans but also as critical scholars for years and years and years and years and yeah we're just wanting to kind of say no it's more complicated. I know that you do a lot of um, ethnographic research um, and I was wondering if you could speak to that element of your work um, your interviews with with um, with people in Japan um, with you know you've already sort of touched on this but um, how people actually consume this media and how it relates back to their identity, especially since a lot of, um, and we'll, we'll come to this a bit later in discussion about the the, the the show in Thailand, but I'm interested in the kind of um, juxtaposition or the, or the consumption of this sort of media in 
still quite conservative cultures yeah. and how that and how this media helps them make sense of that position. Mm. So I am an anthropologist. So, so I am interested in, in cultural practice, in, in ritual, in views and values and, and how they are mapped onto lived experience. Um, mm. So I, I really do believe that in order to make sense of media texts, um, we need to understand them through a cultural context. And within my work in Japan, so what was initially my PhD work, but then became my post, you know, my first postdoctoral work and, and resulted in my first book, which is coming out this year. Um, with the Tell University us the title. Tell us the title. I was about to say, with the University of Michigan Press, it's called Regimes of Desire, Young Gay Men, Media and Masculinity in Tokyo. And what I was doing, uh, the research that, that kind of led to that book was I did uh, field work in Japan's kind of most famous gay nightclub district. So it's a gay nightlife district called Shinjuku Nichome in Tokyo. Um, it has hundreds of gay bars. It is extremely kind of central to Japan's broader gay culture. And what I was doing there was I was trying to make sense of how media consumption informed understanding of desire specifically. And the space, because Shinjuku Nichome or Nichome as it is more, you know, commonly called, is this really neoliberal capitalistic space, right? It's a space where desire is sold, people go there in order to socialize, but the spaces of socialization involve the exchange of goods and services and money and whatnot. Um, it is a site that is driven by the profit motive, mm -hmm. right? It is a capitalist space. And mm -hmm. so what became apparent to me as I met young men in bars or in the streets or, um, in sex on premises venues and all sorts of kind of really um, exciting spaces is that there is like a hierarchy of desire and that desire operates as, a, as a, almost a political economy within that space, that certain desires are privileged because they're tied onto the dominant capitalist culture and other desires are not. And that it's all about selling fantasy. You know, there's that word again the idea of um, certain forms of queer expression and certain gendered um, understandings of the world being tied to emancipation. And then media producers and, and the owners of these bars latching onto that and using it to transform emancipation into, um, you know, profit. Money, so, yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 So, so, so what, what became apparent to me over the years that I was doing work in this space, interviewing um, approximately 50 men and working in depth with four young key informants who became the central, um, you know, their, their lives became central to the book that I wrote, was that these regimes of desire, is what I call them, promote a, a remarkably heteronormative and very, very conservative understanding of what gay male experience should be in Japan and, and that it basically resuscitated the logics of hegemonic masculinity in Japan and toxic masculinity in Japan, which- Wow, that's fascinating, yeah. Mm. Really similar to what we're, what we're um, 
you know, experiencing, when I say toxic masculinity in Japan, it's the same sort of toxic masculinity that you'd encounter here in Australia or in basically any other society. We're talking about mm. heteropatriarchy here. Yeah. So these, these kind of gay media, Japan's gay male media promotes really heteronormative understandings of male identity, like hard, rough, masculine, quote unquote, desires. And what's interesting to me is that because boys love comes from a really different space, it actually challenges and counters some of that. So some of the gay male fans that I interviewed who liked boys love, um, boys love still is not necessarily within this hyper-masculinist um, heteronormative culture tied to Nichome, um, is not necessarily fully accepted um, for the reasons that we were you know, talking about previously mm. regarding you know, queer baiting and, and fetishization and whatnot. Um, but also because they represent a form of masculinity that is quote unquote softer than the so-called ideals valorized in Nichome and the Japanese gay media landscape, you know, they dismiss boys' love. But for people who are unable to live up to the kind of cruel optimism, to quote the late Laurent Vallant, of the, you know, regimes of desire, boys' love is an important resource because it does represent alternative forms of masculinity and alternative narratives of desirability that Japan's gay media does not necessarily provide. So I would never have encountered that. That argument would not have emerged if I wasn't out there every day um, during my PhD and subsequently visiting bars, speaking to people, talking to them about the media they consumed. And it wasn't just manga. I, I talked to them about pornography, advertising, dating sites, the whole works. Mm. Um, and I think this is why ethnography has been really important to the work that I do. Mm. and why reception is so important because a lot of the debates around boys love do focus on representational politics without thinking about how those representational politics are you know consumed and and the thing that really irks me is that there's a, a kind of structuralist approach that, that suggests that these are the representational politics and everyone's going to consume them and hence be inculcated to think in a particular yeah. way which yeah. are, without considering the fact that you know people have agency to engage with and consume texts however they want you know here's Stuart Hall kind of being channeled for yes, me this right. idea <laughs> of, of encoding decoding right yeah, yeah. Um, and and so for me the the messiness of that process of reception is so much more fascinating so that's just a kind of glimpse into why I do the way like why I do things the way that I do yeah, you're speaking to the choir here. I love reception stuff for just that reason. And, you know, thinking about how, you know, it's all very well and good to look at a text, but a text doesn't exist without a response to that text. And there's, so, always, there's always a reader. Yes, there's always reader. a reader. It doesn't exactly. it doesn't do anything. It's just black squiggles on a page unless there's a reader. So you have okay. to think about those things in, in tandem. So I really love that focus. Um, I wanted to shift now to um, to Thailand um, mm. and to think about um, what happens when this paradigm of boys' love shifts to Thailand, especially I'm thinking I'm looking at your article on um, a show called Lovesick, 
the series, um, which I find incredibly fascinating because this is essentially a boys love, a Japanese boys love sort of series adapted to a Thai context. Yes. Um, so I was wondering if you could, yes, yeah, yeah, if you yes. could unpack that a little bit further. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if people have heard of it. I hadn't heard of it before this, so maybe you could explain it a bit. Further. I was going to say it was it was on Netflix actually. Really? I mean, it could still be on Netflix. I'm not sure. Um, a few. Well, of look, those we're in five, lockdown. Yeah. We need lots of media. Yeah, so, yeah. yeah. So, so I mean, it is a lot of these Thai BL shows for consumers particularly in Australia um, you can access them all on YouTube for free and uh, mm. officially like this isn't piracy so you know I can give a, a list of yeah we're not going to advocate for piracy yeah, on the yeah. show but yeah uh, <laughs> but I can yeah but so so I encountered Thai boys love or what in in Thai language is called CD's Y and that Y um, stands for both the Y in the word Yaoi um, which I mentioned previously but it also stands for the Thai term Wairun which means youth Mm. Um, so series Y or Thai boys love kind of I encountered them serendipitously much like my encounter with boys love culture (laughs) code online with the fan fiction I being a scholar of Japanese BL you know in 2014 finishing up my thesis um, this series just kind of popped up on my Facebook kind of as as like you know people were talking about it and and I'm like okay I'm going to check this out and immediately I'm sitting down and watching it and going, okay, this is boys love. I can see all of the classic tropes, all of the the logics that have emerged from Japan being adapted to this Thai context in this show. So Lovesick, the series, um, was broadcast in 2014, the first season. The second season was broadcast in 2015 um, on one of Thailand's public broadcasters, MCOT. And it is an adaption of an online novel written by a a pseudonymous author known variously as Injury Times or P-Head, depending on where she's publishing. Um, And it is a based, it's a television series, um, more properly what in Thailand is called Lakon, which is kind of like a, a soap opera. And it, yeah, is based on a original Thai language novel that was published online as a kind of homage to Japanese boys love. And it emerges out of the Japanese boys love broader fandom in Thailand. It was a, what I call a watershed moment in in Thai cultural representation because Thailand, contrary to popular belief, um, is not some kind of queer utopia where, you know, everyone walks down the street hand in hand, regardless of gender and that, you know, oh, there's lady boys everywhere. And it's somehow this kind of really emancipatory space. The exact opposite is true. Thailand Mm. is a highly sexually conservative society. And until very recently, representation of, um, you know, queer sexuality, particularly male-male romance, uh, was almost unheard of. There are some important precedents that, you know, I don't think we have time to talk about, but Lovesick really changed the game. It's a, it and, surprises yeah. me, actually, that it was on a public broadcaster then. Yeah, and, and the thing that's really interesting is that then it the, the public broadcaster kind of backed away. So the second mm. season of Lovesick was not broadcast on MCOT. It was it transferred to a digital channel. Um, it was still broadcast on television, but it was a, a satellite television channel, mm. so it wasn't a public broadcaster. And it was only in 2019, I think, that MCOT returned to producing Boys Love. But by that point in time, it had shifted to other production companies. 
So it was really radical. And mm -hmm. the reason it happened, um, according to my research, is there were producers in MCOT who were really trying to make sense of the fact that viewership amongst the kind of typical television consumers in Thailand, um, so teenage women, uh, was dramatically dropping. And they knew two things about these this audience. They were crazy for K-pop. They were crazy mm -hmm. for K-pop. And they were crazy for Japanese manga. So they did market research, obviously found out that one of the things that had emerged in recent years in Thailand as uh, throughout the first decades of the 21st century was within K-pop fandom, there is a huge practice known as shipping. So the imagination, imagining idols in homoerotic relationships and writing fanfics about them. And this had tied into Japanese boys love fandom. So Thai fans of the boys love manga that we were talking about. And they've been in Thailand since the uh, early 1990s. Um, so MCOT encountered Lovesick, the, the original novel online. Um, the director of the series actually said that he found it on Facebook, um, which reflects my experience too. <laughs> um, and they said, oh, well, we can see this is really popular. Um, there's a market here. We want to draw women in. We want to create a new style of celebrity that is similar to K-pop stars. So let's use this as a model to do that. They held an open casting call, identified some rookie actors, um, Captain Chonlaton Chonlati and White um, Nawak. I can't remember his last name, um, White Nala, and basically trained them, if you will, to perform homoeroticism, put them in this TV show that was based on a Thai novel that was drawing upon Japanese boys' love tropes, and it became a massive, massive hit. And as a result of that, other companies in Thailand began strategically investing into homoerotic narrative, and from 2014 until Today, in 2021, we've gone from one or two dramas a year to this year, I've lost count. I think that there's been at least 40 announced or broadcast. 40. Yes, there has been at least 40 this year announced or broadcast. And as you can imagine, I try and watch all of them, though not always all the way through. And it is an exhausting task. The other day, actually yesterday, I was complaining to a good a colleague of mine um, in Thailand who also is a fan and researches this stuff, just how exhausted we are trying to stay on top of things. And I do this whilst also balancing my K-pop stuff. So, you know. Yes, we'll come to well. K-pop in a second. <laughs> <laughs> Don't worry, I'm not so, letting yes. you get away with mentioning K-pop and not talking about it. So are there any, are there any um, sort of local variations in this Thai style of boys love like is there a discernible difference besides obviously the language and all of that like have you seen any kind of cultural shifts in the way that these shows represent um queer experiences and um and how does that sort of fit you know with the fact that Thailand is still incredibly conservative um how do how does that how is that managed I suppose so so Within the article that I've written about Lovesick and also forming part of, I think, the second chapter of, I have a second book um, that's, you know, in the works. I can't say too much more because that might uh, hinder the review process. But let's <laughs> just say that if things go according to schedule next year, I should have a book on Boys Love in Thailand coming up. Fantastic, um, yeah. And uh, within that, that book and, and within the article, I speak 
about how Lovesick strategically manages a lot of the queer representation from and, and, and the kind of narrative tropes and conventions of Japanese boys love through a process that I call wavering queerness. So what they do is that they, they kind of take what would be recognizable about boys love and, and that would be okay for a Thai mainstream audience who isn't used to consuming um, male, male homoerotic romance and, and kind of dampen it down. So one of the things that they did with the production of Lovesick is that they injected all of these heterosexual subplots that in the original novel were just not there. And they created like six or seven like male female couples to the mm. point where, yeah, the, there were episodes of the show that didn't even focus on the male male central romance. And, and in the article that you have read, Steph, like I, mm. I kind of diagnose how the very first episode like you watch it and you'd have no idea you're going to be watching a show about um, two boys falling in love with each other because the whole episode is structured around a drama like a, a, a television series exclusive character um, her name is Jeed I think or Jean or something like that um, and like she's a, a woman that they've just introduced and like they create this whole backstory about how she has this kind of on again off again relationship with a guy on the swim team blah 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 it has nothing to do with anything but mm. the majority of that first episode is focused on her and when we do see the two men who are eventually going to fall in love they're only depicted within the context of having relationships with other women. Um, and, and so we're, we're introduced to them as, you know, heterosexual. They're, they're in love with these girls. And it's only at the very end of the episode, like very, very end in the last like three minutes or so that we have any inkling that they're going to get together. And it's played up in a way that actually kind of emphasizes is, is just how kind of morally dubious that is because one of the guys it's like the, the narrative is really stupid it's like oh I'll help you if you pretend to be my boyfriend and then the other guy's like fuck you um <laughs> literally and you know the reason that is is because the the director was quite candid because there was a lot of backlash from fans of the original novel and the director's like, actually, we were kind of thinking that we wouldn't make it focused on the queer narrative because oh, right. yeah. it's dangerous to do that. And But we see that you all want that, so we'll make sure that we... If you insist, yeah. yeah. That and, sounds and, like a nice strategy to get out of trouble. Yeah, yeah. yeah. and, and there, there are precedents for that happening in previous um, kind of shows and movies in Thailand. So that's a common narrative. Whereas um, the most recent series that I watched last night, um, as the lockdown and curfew descended upon me here, mm -hmm. and, um, an LGA of concern, um, <laughs> is that, uh, like, this is a show where basically, I think maybe it was like 40 minutes long, and then 20% of the, the, the episode was them kind of just like sucking each other's tongues out. Um, so like, we've gone from from wavering queerness to explicit representation of not just like romance, but sex. Right. Yeah, I was going to um, ask about that. Has there been yeah, a shift yeah, towards so, so less? It, it, yeah. Yeah. And, and as that has happened, what has been really interesting is that the production of Boys Love in Thailand now strongly aligns with the narrative conventions of Japanese Boys Love in the sense that you don't get any of this wavering, you don't get mm. any of this attempt to try and make sense of it because over the last seven years, right, um, the the this this kind of stuff is no longer a 
a kind of genre that consumers in Thailand don't understand and need to have translated into cultural norms. It is a mainstream form of representation that is heavily embedded in Thai consumer and celebrity culture. The, de the, the default assumption from producers nowadays is that young women who consume media in Thailand are fans of boys' love and hence they need to include it. So what's been really interesting is to see how traditional soap operas in Thailand have now begun including the boy-boy couple because mm. it needs to be there because if it's not, then the fans aren't interested. And so it is this broader process of mainstreaming and as things have mainstreamed, Thai boys' love has in some ways um, matched up to Japan or in other ways has even gone further than what we would see in Japan. Um, Japanese boys love texts very rarely engage in kind of what I would call political questions. So, you know, questions of, you know, same-sex marriage or discrimination, and it's very firmly, you know, in this kind of fantasy land. Whereas another series that I watched this morning, and yes, I, I there's so much content that I have to spend all my time watching it. Was I'm sure that's terrible for you. Yeah. Oh, I know. Mm, like yeah, watching yeah. watching pretty boys falling in love is just oh, such what a hard burden. work. Yeah, yeah. Um, but <laughs> like this series, it's called Don't Don't Say No. The series, which sounds like a terrible title in some regards, um, <laughs> the issue of consent. But one of the central themes is that it's about a good boy falling in love with a bad boy. I just realized that this is a, a podcast and people won't see my scare quotes. Um, That's all right. But, he is emphatically scare quoting, I can tell yeah, you. So, yeah. so, and, and <laughs> what, we, what we have happened is that the, the bad boy is promiscuous. Um, and before getting with the good guy boy, like he, he was sleeping around and he was known as a, like a bit of a, a slut. And basically the episode is all about slut shaming and revenge porn. And right. like that's that's a huge issue. Like, and it, it's explored sensitively, and it is and condemned. And like, it's not just some kind of scenario for sexy times. It's a, it's mm. a scenario that is explored sensitively in order to understand the um, kind of pressures that same-sex desiring men in Thai society have to face with the perception that they are promiscuous mm. and how to negotiate that. So I haven't seen a text in Japan do that. Like that, oh, I've never seen. Yeah. I've never seen a boys' love text do that in Japan. And I think one of the reasons is that in in Japan, it's predominantly restricted to the comics. Yeah, there's television shows and and of course anime, so the animated cartoons. But in Thailand, the norm is novel and then television series live action. And I think that those generic kind of differences have led to different focuses. And, and it's also been important when I've been interviewing consumers of Thai BL, like fans of it in the Philippines, for instance, and I've also been doing work with fans in Japan because guess what? It's jumped to Japan as a of course. Yeah. Um, and they're basically saying, oh, it, it's more, you know, they're using the language of realistic, but what they mean when they say that is that it's not that the representation is more authentic, but it's more accessible because you're seeing real people yeah. And, and that that's for the fans of Thai content, that's much, much, much more appealing than the comic books or the anime. Um, whereas, you know, the fans in Japan who like that sort of thing, it's the fantasy and they, they don't want it to be quote unquote real. And this tension is still something I'm trying to work out. Do you think um, that the mainstreaming of these sorts of media will have an effect yet? on or is having an effect on the sexual conservatism of Thailand? Do you think that um, 
the the increasing representation of these sorts of relationships or do some sort of broader social good. I'm thinking here about how like American television shows um, like, I don't know, Will and Grace kind of, you know, are said to have pushed the needle on issues like gay marriage, et cetera. I, I think that there is a potential. Um, and I, I want to kind of strongly underline the word potential yeah, rather yeah, than yeah. impact, right? Um, yeah. And there is a bit of an assumption within the kind of North American dominated queer studies academy that and look, I even bought into it in my first book when I was talking about it, is, is that, you know, consumerism is bad, right? And, and mm. capitalism is bad. And yes, I when I was doing research in, in Japan, that was the, the stick that I took. And it was a remarkably, you know, paranoid reading to, to quote, um, uh, you know, classic queer theory, but I'm being more reparative in Thailand. And, and there's a, a good colleague of mine, a very senior colleague in Thai, um, history and sexuality studies named Peter A. Jackson at the ANU. Um, and he has made a lot of like, he's really emphasized the fact that the expansion of consumer culture in Thailand has been remarkably important for the everyday lives of same-sex desiring people, particularly mm. those who come from less um, privileged backgrounds. Because as we know, Thailand is still a developing society and there's a lot of poverty. So my, my feeling is that yes, is it going to translate into legal reform? Well, you know, the Thai government's a bit of a mixed bag, as yeah. we are probably all well aware. Yeah, yeah, but, yeah. but for several years, there has been a, um, a law up for debate around civil unions um, and mm -hmm. the uh, introduction of anti-discrimination law. And, and fans of boys' love in Thailand, as well as the celebrities who are involved in performing in boys' love, have been very vocal in, in pushing for that law to be enacted. And the, the, the you know, current regime in Thailand, it, they, they've committed to, to eventually enacting it, but we just don't know when. Um, there is that activist kind of um, yeah, force to it, yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, so there, there's all of this kind of emancipatory potential, but for me, if we're gonna talk politics, it is the informal politics of everyday life. Um, so for, for the same-sex desiring man or the um, kind of gender non-conforming katoi, which is the formal term for a lady boy, by the way, um, <laughs> or um, the heterosexual female fan whose desires are denied by Thai um, kind of heteropatriarchy, the everyday impacts that this media provides them, whether that be... Um, understanding their sexual identities in the world, or some of you may be listening, may be aware that Thailand has been very volatile politically right now with a lot of youth protest and um, Thai BL celebrities, because they are mainstream celebrities, they're big, big, you know, huge celebrities in Thailand. Um, they've been very active in, in kind of raising civil society issues around various uh concerns, um, particularly related to COVID, um, as well as something that I can't talk about if I don't want to find myself in, in trouble with Thai law. Um, Please don't. <laughs> yes. So yeah. because of that, you know, th th this subculture, this fandom culture has become this side of activism. And that's really, really mm -hmm. exciting. Um, and that's, that is something that I'm interested in exploring further with some of my colleagues working more in this traditional space.
Yeah, that sounds so fascinating. But we don't have much time left, so yes. I'm going to ask you about K-pop. Yes. Uh, if you could tell me about your research into um, into K-pop and what your specific interest is in that in that space, besides the snappy tunes. <laughs> uh, so much like everything else here, my my interest in K-pop traditionally like comes from my position as a fan, um, and and more so than anything. Um, I'm a huge fan of Thai Boys Love, I should mention, but I'm an insane fan of K-pop, um, notoriously uh, amongst, you know, colleagues, a fan of K-pop, I think. Really? Um, <laughs> yes. Um, and, um, you know, whether that be BTS or um, earlier bands such as uh, Dongbang Shinki, um, currently I'm obsessed with uh, NCT. Um, I'm really, really curious about two things. One, once again, the impacts of K-pop consumption on queer consumers throughout um, the, the around the globe. So I've been looking at that in Australia and Japan, as well as a little bit in the Philippines. But of course, my Thai BL stuff has inadvertently become involved there as well. But the other thing that I'm really concerned, kind of interested in, is is the role of K-pop consumption in Australia in responding to debates about you know, Australia's positioning vis-a-vis -vis Asia and the Asia Pacific. Mm. And I've, I had an article published in the Journal of Australian Studies last year. Yeah, last year. Or was it 2019? Don't time doesn't remember. mean anything anymore. Yeah, yeah, I know. There is, there is no, <laughs> There's time. no time. We live in an eternal <laughs> present. Yeah. Um, and it was basically looking at how consumers of Korean popular culture, as well as Japanese popular culture, but specifically BTS fans, um, positioned themselves as cosmopolitan subjects with Asia literacy. So how the how K-pop provides consumers in Australia from both Asian Australian and um, predominantly Anglo-Celtic backgrounds. So both of them with, with resources, there's that word again, to make sense of their positioning in the world and, and really kind of demonstrate their Asian knowledge and, and use that to respond to various forms of hegemonic culture in Australia. And, and to kind of link into what we've been talking about, part of that has been the work that I've been doing on K-pop shipping and attraction to idols who have a very, particularly male idols, um, male celebrities, who have a very different aesthetic and gender performance to the hegemonic forms of masculinity in Australia mm -hmm. and how that's been empowering for various people, whether that be Asian Australian um, consumers who are either, you know, women and men of both same-sex desiring and hetero saying, oh, you know, I, I grew up thinking that Asian men are unattractive and now I can see that they are to, um, you know, white Australian women who look to um, BTS and, and say, look, um, this made me realize that there are other ways of being masculine and that, you know, wearing makeup and taking care of yourself is actually a, a much more appealing form of masculinity than the kind of uncaring, rugged masculinity that is valorized in Australia, whether that be same-sex desiring white men who, like myself, have turned to K-pop and said, look, this, this, uh, and, and shipping in particular and fan fiction and say, this affirms my sexuality and Australian media and its representations of queerness don't resonate with me. Mm -hmm. And like, it's that, that, that once again, it's my interest is in how these media forms can be used as tools to either make sense of positioning in the world or, or to really kind of deconstruct, um, yeah, kind of normative logics in society that sounds very um, kind of overblown but it is, no, it is no. exactly what I'm doing yeah that that's 
That's really fascinating. And I mean, I've, I've certainly noticed that move towards, um, you know, like five years ago, nobody in Australia was talking about K-pop, but all of a sudden it's everywhere. And I think yeah. it's a really, it's really quite significant in thinking about our relationship with Asia as well. Yeah. yeah, um, yeah. That, that it is become, you know, friends who've never spoken about this before have all of a sudden become huge BTS fans. <laughs> um, I think that, and, you know, even from not knowing anything about it, that, has to be kind of significant in terms of our orientation towards Asia. It's, it's, it's like um, in 2018, BTS topped the ARIA charts. That's a huge, yeah. a huge like a huge shift. And I, I talked to, you know, my parents and, and like it's inconceivable to them that something yeah. like happened. Yeah. I mean, yeah, even looking back to when I was a teenager, that's, Hmm. inconceivable to me even that yeah, that would yeah. happen. Well, even, even me, even me. Yeah, exactly yeah. yeah. Thank you so much, Tom. I knew it was going to be a great idea to get you on here because you were going to be so fascinating. And I'm sorry, stayed... I just couldn't shut my mouth. <laughs> no, no, that's exactly what I wanted and it stayed um, relatively uh, clean. <laughs> so congratulations. I yeah, I know, I, I know. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for speaking to me today, Tom. You're welcome. Um, I will put links to um, your website and some of your research up online so people can access um, some materials. And I'm sure maybe um, Lovesick, if it's still up on Netflix or if it's on YouTube, might be getting a few more hits after this. So thank you so much. So. You're <laughs> um, welcome. No worries at all. This has been fascinating. This has been another episode from The Lighthouse. If you could please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, that would be fantastic. Um, you can get in touch with us at fromthelighthouse.org. Um, you can follow the English department at English at MQ, English MQ on um, Twitter, or you can always drop us a line with um, recommendations for future episodes and requests and so forth. So thanks once again, Tom, and we'll see you next time.